Welcome to Flower Hour. A podcast completely dedicated to baking. I'm Amanda in Atlanta. And I'm Jeremiah in Sacramento. Hi, Amanda. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. I'm super excited about our episode today. As always, <laughs> I'm a broken record. As always. Always excited. So, um, but first, how are you? What have you been up to? Have you been baking this week? I'm well. I have been baking, not as much as usual, but I did bake a very special cake by our guest, and I'm so excited to talk to her. I have a feeling you made the same cake, did you? <laughs> yeah, we we have mind meld on a regular basis. Like I'll look and see what you've done and I'm like, oh my gosh, I did the same thing today of all the stuff in the world um, for us to do. But yeah, I think we both made the same flourless chocolate cake, right? Um, that sh- yes. she has in her Instagram story. So our guest, did we say, our guest is Zoe Francois. So if you're on Instagram and you are following her, you're a very lucky person. And if you're not, you absolutely should be following her. It's Zoe Bakes is her screen name. And that's how I came across her. But she's been in the world of baking and pastry for quite a while. She has so many great accomplishments and we're excited to have her on. But back to this cake. I have to talk about the cake at least for a second. Let's talk. It was one of those that I made and I was like, I really wanted to take pictures so I can post it and tell people about the episode, right? Like that was part of why I was motivated to make this specific cake. But then as soon as I cut it, it like consumed me. I could not wait to eat it. And I'm like standing at my counter. I did not put it on a plate. I cut a wedge. I started eating it with my hands and I was just like raptured away. And until I had already eaten pretty much a whole slice, I realized kind of like the animal I had become. But (laughs) I think that's the beauty of a really great recipe sometimes is it takes you out of time and space. I mean, you, you are one with the cake for that moment and that's all you're doing. It's like a, a, a cake, chocolate cake meditation. (laughs) (laughs) That's a meditation series. I would sign up for. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, what about you? Did you have fun making it? I did. And you know what? It's so easy to make and fast and it's super elegant, so beautiful. So sadly, I didn't get to taste mine. I made it as a gift, um, but it is so beautiful. And I, I know my um, the recipients loved it. So I wish I could have gotten animal style with it as well. But... <laughs> Don't be mean. No, no judgment. <laughs> I'll just have to make it again. Yeah. Yeah, you have to make it and then you can have your chocolate cake animal moment too. But um, anyway, so we're keeping our part really, really short today. We've got some great um, listener questions that we're going to put into our next episode. So if you're listening, I definitely want you to know we want to answer your questions and they're great, but we've got so much to pack in. So our guest today is Zoe Francois. And if you don't know Zoe, she's a pastry chef, a blogger, a cookbook author, a teacher, an Instagram story master. Wow. So let's get Zoe and bring her on. I'm so excited. Welcome, Zoe, to Flower Hour. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. 
Hi Zoe, we are so excited to have you on and I just want to dive right into questions if that's okay with you because we yeah. have a lot that we want to ask and find out. Sure, that sounds great. Um, so the first thing I wanted to ask is just as an avid, I would definitely say I'm an avid follower of yours on Instagram. Um, I'd prefer to say that than stalker. Um, <laughs> but I get so excited when your stories pop up and part of that is because you can just feel the joy and passion and playfulness as you're watching your bakes. And I was just curious about baking. Has it always been a passion of yours or was there a specific time in your life when it really became that for you? No, it definitely started out as my passion. And I would say that was like, even as a kid, I grew up as a hippie in communes and was not allowed to have sugar. And, but even then I, created just, uh, I wouldn't call it food because I was just sort of throwing stuff together and mixing it up. And I'm talking about like when I was really little, this is probably like three and I lived in a commune. And so we had a pantry that could feed, I don't know how many of us were living there, 30, 40 people. And I dumped all of the pantry contents into a bathtub <laughs> And mixed oh, it up yeah, into the bathtub, me and my friend. And we just went for it and mixed it up. I mean, we didn't, you know, it had nothing to do with baking. We were just like, you know, messing around. And then jump forward when I got into school, I did start baking and we would mix stuff together. Again, I would not call it food because it was barely edible. Um, it contained ingredients, but it wasn't edible. And we would mix stuff together, put it in the oven, and just see what would come of it. Um, and then in high school is when I really started baking. And my mom was not a baker. At this point, you know, I went to school. I discovered that sugar existed. And cookies were, like, my thing. So <laughs> I have always, always baked since I was a kid. Um, and then even... Um, I start actually started a cookie company in college, um, and that was actually a project for a business class that I was taking, um, which I had absolutely no business being in that class. But their assignment was start a business on paper, and of course, I went straight to cookies. So yeah, it's always been sort of my thing. I love it. I have this image of you now as like a little three-year-old mad scientist. <laughs> That's about right. Yep. I'm pretty sure I was covered from head to toe in whatever was in that bathtub. That's so awesome. Did did you guys eat any of the stuff from the bathtub? Oh, no. Are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, yeah, probably. We were three. I'm sure we yeah. tried to eat it. I mean, but three-year-olds eat paste, so they can't be accounted for any taste. So yeah, I'm sure we ate it. It was probably disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> what was that like having sugar for the first time? Well, okay. So I went to, basically I went to kindergarten and I'm sure somebody brought a Twinkie and I was like, what is this? And why has nobody told me? Like my parents were trying to pawn off raisins as candy. So, <laughs> you know, I was just like, are you people kidding? This stuff exists in the world. And I would go home, and of course, I wasn't allowed to have any of that there, but I would go to school and I would trade my lunches with the kids that had sugary stuff in their lunches. So I got really crafty about it. 
<laughs> That's what sugar will do to you for sure. Um, I mean, the hilarious thing is that when my boys were young, I didn't let them have sugar either. So, I mean, I'm not like, you know, it comes full circle. I was like, I'll never do that to my kids. And of course, you know, I did the exact same thing. And they discovered sugar at school too. So, <laughs> funny. It's bound to happen. That's for sure. Yeah. I was reading that your father was, or is a beekeeper. So yeah. did you have a lot of desserts made with honey when you were young? Well, everything was made with honey. I mean, honey was really an ingredient. It was a medicine. It was everything. Um, I remember one time the entire commune got pink eye and they had the great you know, thought to cure it with honey. So of course it spread like wildfire, like everybody in the commune ended up with pink eye because honey, although it is miraculous, is not a cure for pink eye. (laughs) 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 So yes, we did everything. I mean, it was a sweetener. It was, you know, everything. It cured colds. It, you know, it's really an amazing, amazing Um, thing to have around. My dad would, my dad started the very first co-op in Vermont, and this was in the 60s. Um, And they would um, travel with honey and maple syrup down to Florida um, and sell it. I mean, it was really quite a staple for us in our life. Hearing this, I I keep bees as well. Oh, you do? I I always am putting honey on everything as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whatever. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. See, people won't think I'm quite as crazy for saying no. that. Yeah, good. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I'm with you 100%. From the outside, like, it makes me think about in Big Fat Greek Wedding where the dad, like, puts Windex on everything. I'm just imagining you guys, like, oh, this is wrong with you here. Let's put some honey on it. And I'm very much that way with coconut oil. I feel like, oh, yeah. You know, like how yeah. it is now with coconut oil. So that's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, do you still like to use honey? And do you have any tips on oh, how yeah. you like to incorporate it to recipes? Or are there any right. um, rules about substituting it in bakes? Well, yeah, that's an interesting story because, um, well, so I grew up not being allowed to eat sugar. Then I discovered sugar and I was all about it. And then I went to college and I stopped eating it again. So, I mean, I've just been like a roller coaster with this. I've had, you know, this crazy relationship with this. And so when I was in college, I wasn't eating sugar. I was a vegetarian. And I decided that all of the baked goods, because I lived in Vermont. So, you know, this was not an unusual dietary, you know, decision. And all the baked goods were just god awful. They were heavy and dense and tasted like tree bark. <laughs> and so I decided that I would go to culinary school so that I could figure out how to make a baked good that was delicious and had the texture that sugar can provide, but be made with all natural sweeteners, honey and maple syrup and agave and you know all of those things. And I got to culinary school and I got seduced by sugar again. (laughs) And it's like, I was like, what? You know, I had like this whole world of like opportunities and, you know, just the brilliance of what sugar can do. 
suck me right back in. So I sort of lost my resolve. So, you know, I've gone back and forth with um, using sugar and using honey. You can't, for some recipes, you can um, swap them out one for one. In others, you just can't because um, it's going to make for a much denser product. The other thing is honey is really, really sweet. People think sugar is the sweetest thing, but honey, I find, can be much sweeter and things baked with honey can come out much, much too sweet. So the the answer is sometimes. <laughs> sometimes you can swap it out and sometimes you can't. And it really just depends what you're baking. One of my very favorite things to make with honey is buttercream. I don't know. I'm on sort of this meringue buttercream kick on Instagram right now. And one of the recipes that I haven't shared yet is um, a honey buttercream, which is just one of my all time. I could just sit down with a bowl of honey buttercream and just go to town. I have to make that immediately. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, it sounds great. I love it when, like, the thing I like about honey is that it brings flavor instead of just mm -hmm. sweetness. So that's kind of a special thing. But I've had a lot of trouble trying to sub it into cakes. I don't know. Yep. And I try to follow all the rules. I'll Google it. I'll go on, you know, the that's kitchen right. and go, okay, reduce the liquids, do this, do that. Yeah. And it still comes yeah. out just dense. like dense and pudding ish, you know, yeah, just that's not right. quite right. So it's true. It's true. And honestly, I have not cracked that. I haven't, um, I haven't figured out exactly what the ratio has to be to do that substitution. Um, so you, your expectation, it's almost like um, baking with gluten-free. Yeah. Your expectation just has to be different. You know what I mean? It's not that it's not great. It's just it's not going to be exactly like the one made with sugar. And that's okay. You know, I yeah. think... I think that's where people just have to sort of change their mindset about what it is that they're eating. That's a good point. Like if you change where you're aiming, make a really mm -hmm. great version of that instead that's of trying right. to make it fit into that other box. Yeah. Yep. Um, I had a question. So I think this is in Vermont. Is it Ben and Jerry's in Vermont? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I read that you worked as an ice cream maker there. Is that I did, right? Well, I was the ice cream cake maker. Ooh. So Yeah. So that was, um, I, you know, I was a scooper. I made, this was way, way, way back when, when Ben and Jerry's was one store and we made all the ice cream out of one bucket churner. Wow. And that was it. This was not the, these days where Ben and Jerry's is in every grocery store and there's a huge, huge manufacturing plant. Um, this was one store, one churner, all the ice cream came out of it. So we all did everything. Um, but then I discovered ice cream cakes, which was, you know, what we put together for special orders and birthdays and stuff. And it was awesome because this is where I discovered cake decorating because we would, you know, pipe things on the cakes and that became my jam. Like I didn't want to do anything else after I picked up a piping bag. That's like all I could do. Um, yeah. So that was my job, one of my jobs in college. 
Um, and the, the devastating thing about that job is that they gave you two pints of ice cream after every shift. What? (laughs) (laughs) Which was just like a godsend and the worst nightmare for a college student, you know, who (laughs) was battling their college 15 anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And my husband, who I'd already met at the time, I think he gained 45 pounds when I had that job. (laughs) Seriously, I mean, it was terrible. It was terrible. I mean, I'm a pastry chef and I eat a lot of sugar and I eat a lot of baked goods because I just love, love, love what I do and I love to eat them and I love to make them. Um, But I don't gain, I don't gain weight because I don't eat the whole cake and I don't eat the whole pint of ice cream, but I used to, I did it when I had that Ben and Jerry's job. It was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the key. I know the more I'm baking, the less I crave it, but the same though, I want to taste it all and enjoy it, but it's a different level of enjoyment versus like, I need to eat this. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, I do it. And I, I mean, I think a lot of people that get into this industry, do it because they'd love to share that with other people. I mean, I prefer watching other people enjoy my food more than I even enjoy eating it. I mean, that's the thrill for me is making something. I have two teenage boys and you would think they would eat anything, but I think I've spoiled them. And if they don't like something, they tell me, but if they do like it, they'll devour it. And it is the best joy to watch them because I know if they're going to devour something that they really love it. So that for me is, you know, I know this is a tangent, but that's, that's really the hook for me in this job. I think you captured what I think all of us bakers feel for sure that watching that happen is there's no other feeling like it. It makes you want to keep doing it and and do Mm -hmm. something better and you want to surprise them even more. And exactly. Yeah, completely, completely gratifying. I think for me, it's the start and then the end that are my favorite parts. Like I really Mm -hmm. love the mixing Mm -hmm. of ingredients, but then definitely the highlight when somebody's eating it and they ask for seconds, you're like, score. This is so (laughs) awesome. (laughs) That's right. Yep. (laughs) So you received your formal training at the CIA, the Culinary Institute. Yep. And then you worked in a lot of professional pastry kitchens. Yes. Um, yep. You worked with Steve, Stephen Brown and Andrew yep. Zimmerman. Um, for us, professional kitchens are a bit mysterious and daunting. Uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. What, are, what are some of the <laughs> tips or practical things you learned working there that you can share with home bakers to improve our skills? Yeah, um, I would say the number one thing about being in a professional kitchen is organization. So mise en place, which is basically setting all of your ingredients in place and having everything ready to go. Um, Space is a premium in a restaurant kitchen, especially for the baking department. I have run an entire baking department off of a rolling rack, and that was my entire Uh, space. I would have a cutting board on the rolling rack and I would prep on it. I developed an entire menu on a rolling rack. For those of you that don't know what a rolling rack is, it's, it's a rack 
that has slots in it for baking sheets. And you just stack all of your baking sheets on this rack and you can roll it around, hence rolling rack. Um, and that was it. That was my entire space. So I had to be super organized and have everything neat and tidy in there. And I think that makes you not only can you fit into a small space, but it also makes you super efficient. Um, and I think for you know professional kitchens, that's what it's all about. It's being able to move elegantly in a small space and quickly because especially during a service and you have tickets coming in and orders and you have to be able to move quickly and you have to be able to dance. We call it the sort of kitchen dance. You have to be able to dance in this tight area with a bunch of other people holding really hot pans. So, um, yeah, so that's, I think, um, the main thing is organization and spatial awareness. <laughs> I really like this tip and it's so practical. So as a home baker, it's easy to take something like that and translate it to home, yeah. just like having all the ingredients out. I know for me, um, when Jeremiah and I did the show, the Great yeah. American Baking Show, that was right. part of it is we had to have all of our ingredients not measured out, but at least mm -hmm. kind of lined up and we yeah. were blocking. And as a baker, like it, it definitely set us up, I feel like, for more success than yeah. if you're just chaotically grabbing ingredients uh, That's right. throughout a recipe. And you saying the rolling rack made me remember, I think I saw in your stories, is that what you have in your kitchen? Yeah, yeah. I do. When I design this kitchen, I have a half rack. So it's not as tall as a restaurant one, but it, it's, um, it fit. And so I, I have this half rolling rack and I basically showed it to the architect and I said, I don't care what you do with this kitchen, but this has to have a home. <laughs> and it had basically, I wanted him to build a little garage for it. And he built a little garage. I have pictures of it um, on my website if people want to see. But it rolls right under my counter. And it's fantastic. I can store things there when things come hot out of the oven. I stick them on there. Um, yeah. And so that was really an essential piece for me. And it's probably, it definitely comes from all the time I spent in restaurant kitchens um, that I'm just so used to working with that, that it, um, it had to play a part in, in my home baking as well. Yeah. When I, when I saw it, I had total kitchen envy because I was like, <laughs> the thing for me is I have plenty of counter space, but once mm -hmm. you have a certain number of cakes sitting out to cool, right. if you don't have yeah. a way to kind of stack that. I, when I saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, I need to figure out, like, can I put an eye, like my brain was going wild. I'm like, how do I get, <laughs> how do I make this happen in my house? And then the other yeah. thing we see you use that I also have kind of, um, I have an envy for is your burns matic I think I'm saying it right. Oh, your kitchen yes. torch. I love yes. how it has like a trigger. You squeeze it yes. and flame shoot yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so exciting. That's right. <laughs> I know. Well, so most people, when they have kitchen torches, it's those tiny little ones that you can buy at kitchen shops. And this one is just straight out of Home Depot. It's a giant canister of gas. And um, its purpose is not meant for the kitchen, but it's so much fun. It is probably my favorite kitchen tool. 
And it's probably why I like meringue so much because I just like to light it on fire. That's (laughs) the long and short of it is that I love, I mean, I love the activity of doing it. Um, And I love that flavor too, that sort of burnt, uh, toasty marshmallow flavor of it. So yeah, everybody, everybody has to have a torch. It's just too much fun. Yeah, it's such a fun tool. Um, I was going to ask you, so also on your website, I read that you traveled a lot after you finished art school. And I was curious if you have any really vivid memories from that from that time of something that you ate that was just spectacular. Oh, well, I mean, okay, so let's see. I think macarons are one. Um, that just sort of blew my mind. Um, they're a, um, I think, you know, right now they're so ubiquitous that probably everybody knows what it is, but it's a, it's a, a cookie that is made by creating a meringue and folding in almond meal, which is just ground almonds, super, super fine. And, um, and then they're baked into these flat little cookies and then sandwiched with either buttercream or ganache or pretty much anything that you can get in there. But they're ethereal. I mean, they're just like eating sweet, delicate little clouds, but they're intensely flavored. And I hadn't, I mean, come on, I can't, I grew up on raisins and granola and I went and had this most delicate thing and it just blew my mind. So I would say that was probably that and Madeline's were probably, you know, I had a brown butter Madeline for the first time and I was just like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, so I, yeah. So amazing. Yeah. That's probably, those are probably the things that, that had the biggest impact on me. I love how travel can do that for you. Like um, there's these treats out there that you can come across and it's just becomes a special thing. Like forever yeah. is part of like yeah. part of your story at that point. Mm-hmm. That's right. So the first time you made macarons or melons, yeah. was it just as magical? Well, um, the first time? <laughs> yeah, not so much. I mean, I, I think the, the first time I made them after culinary school, yeah. Okay, so this is exactly why I love, love, love doing these stories on Instagram because I have this wealth of knowledge that I got at culinary school. And I remember trying these recipes, reading them, trying them. I mean, I remember the first time I made chocolate mousse from um, Time Life magazine books. You, I don't know if you guys remember those, but they had these books about all over the world. And part of the books were about the cuisine of the world and they would have recipes. And so I made chocolate mousse and it called for coffee. Well, I didn't know it meant brewed coffee. I thought it was just coffee grounds. So I stuck coffee grounds in there and it was... <laughs> disgusting <laughs> and grainy and gritty and I ate it anyway because <laughs> I was you know 14 um but it's like I I have all of this information that I got at culinary school and I know people love to bake and there are just these 
little tricks and little secrets that we learn in culinary school. And I love to share them on my in my Instagram story because um, I want everybody to have these moments. I want people to try macarons for the first time and like have crazy success with it. And it's it's worked. I, I did one um, video series on that cookie and people are making them and their first go at it. I had so many goes at it before it worked. Um, and I've had a few people write back to me and say they did it. And the first time they did it, it worked. So it's super exciting when that happens. I love it. So yes, to uh, that got way off topic, but it probably took me a hundred times. It doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to be that way because there are secrets and there are tricks to make it super, super easy. And once you know those tricks, it is so easy. None of this is rocket science. It is, but there is a little bit of science. But once you know those little teeny tricks, um, people can have success the first time. Yeah, I wish I would have come across your stories before <laughs> my first time because oh, there, yeah. there have been a lot of batches that have yeah. gotten, you know nibbled um, by my kids briefly yeah, yeah, yeah. and then dumped in the right. trash. So, Well, that's what I always say is that if it doesn't work out, it's still the same ingredients. It's still going to taste great. You just got to call it something else. You know, it's like <laughs> renaming it goes a long way. So, yeah. So I've had a lot of failed macarons and I would make, turn them into a trifle and I would call it a yeah. macaron <laughs> trifle. <laughs> I love that so much. That's awesome. Okay. I'm dying though. So can you share us maybe one or two of your favorite macaron secrets? Well, okay. So one thing um, is the way that you smash the mixture against the bowl. So it goes against everything everybody thinks about creating this gorgeous um, meringue and then at folding in your almond meal. And then basically you have to smash that mixture against the bowl and get some of the air out. Otherwise, when you bake them, they want to souffle up into, you know, balls in the oven and you want them to be perfectly flat. The other secret is letting them dry out a little bit before you bake them. So they have to develop like a skin on the top so that um, they won't again, so that they won't blow out of shape when they go in the oven. And I think those two things are really where people have fallen into chaos um, <laughs> when they try this one. It's funny because the first maybe three or four times that I made them, the recipes didn't have anything about drying. Mm. And then, you know, then I searched out for better recipes and I ended up, you know, obviously finding that because it's yeah. in... Yeah. A lot of them, but, but yeah, I mean, in some recipes, they don't even mention it. And it, yeah. I think they said something about wait until they're ready. But if you have, <laughs> if you don't know what that means, it's like you're kind of looking at them like, are you guys ready? You know, I think you're ready, but it's right. so mysterious. But yeah, well, I love I, those practical tips like that. Yeah. Well, I think that's the difference between writing a recipe as a chef and writing a recipe as a teacher. Because 
I have been, you know, I was a chef first and then, but almost immediately got dragged into teaching. Um, and I say dragged because it terrified me in the beginning. And, but now, I mean, I think it's such a valuable thing to have because from teaching for so long, I've had so many amazing questions from people that I sort of know how to predict where people might go wrong with a recipe. And with a chef, they're just writing down what they do. You know, they're not thinking, they don't even know everything that they know. And so they, they can't write it down. Whereas a teacher can sort of step back and sort of predict what a novice might be going through when they're looking at a recipe. So there's a lot of amazing cookbooks out there by chefs that do not work because they're not writing everything down because they take things for granted. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And down the line, I've learned to kind of look at recipes and some, sometimes I can trust my own skills now, but a lot of times mm-hmm. still I can read a recipe and I'm like, this is not going to work for me because it's too vague. And then right. language from other cookbook authors that I'm like, oh, I can really make these. And, and you can kind of tell before you even make it, you're going to mm-hmm. most likely have success. So that's okay. a good point, chef versus yeah. teacher language. Yep. Yep. You really, I feel like you have to be very confident in your kitchen skills to buy a book from a chef. You know, there are some that are great teachers as well. And if they have, you know, uh, ghost writers who know how to write a recipe, um, they'll be successful. I buy a lot of those books for inspiration and not so much for the recipes themselves because these chefs are just geniuses. Um, and so their flavor combinations are so inspiring or what they're doing is inspiring, but the recipes not always so much. <laughs> I love that you said that. So buying them for inspiration, because that's one of the things I wanted to ask you is if you are, you know, I don't know where you are when you're writing a recipe, but if you're like, I'm going to make a new recipe, do you normally start out from flavors as an inspiration or like, do you go, I want to make a cake and then go from there? Where does it start for you? Well, that's different every single day. So, um, I, I find inspiration everywhere. I'll go to the grocery store and there'll be a cool fruit or there'll be, you know, something will catch my eye and I'll want to just use that as an ingredient. Other days I'll just have a craving, you know, I'll need like, um, or um, a friend of mine made banana pudding on his Instagram page. And I'm like, I have to have that. Like there was just no stopping me. There was like, I have to have banana pudding now. And, you know, or (laughs) I hate to admit this, I'll go to a restaurant and I'll have a terrible dessert and I'll have to go home and recreate it and make it awesome (laughs) (laughs) Um, because it had potential, but it's like they just didn't nail it. And I and then I have to go home and figure out, okay, how could you make this and really nail it? Um, So it comes from, you know, ingredients. (laughs) other people's failures, my own (laughs) failures, you know, like if I just have bombed a recipe, I'll make recipes 10 to 12 times before I 
put them out for people to ever see. Um, if I think that something has the kernel of being awesome, but I just can't get there. I mean, this is, it sounds belabored, but this is the challenge for me. This is the fun part is like figuring this stuff out is just super fun for me. So luckily I don't let people into every single thought in my head, um, or it would get kind of noisy, but, um, (laughs) You know, once I put a recipe out there, I've I am very confident that other people will be able to recreate it because um, I don't want people to get frustrated with me. Um, but I don't nail it every time on the first time, so um, it's fun. I think that part of it's fun. That's good to know because neither neither do I. <laughs> yeah. yeah, nobody does. Nobody does. Um, and some people don't nail it, and they still serve it in a restaurant, and that bugs me. Yeah, I would never do that. I would, you know, I've been super lucky to work in restaurants that don't have a set menu, um, and so I can come in that day and create whatever I want to create. And if it doesn't work, I don't serve it. And I've had really, really great chefs who are okay with that because they would rather, you know, I try something and if it doesn't work, um, they'd rather just save it for when it does work. Uh, because the dessert, um, not all restaurants take them seriously, but it's the very last impression of somebody's meal. And if it's terrible, they're going to walk out of there a little bit disappointed. Even if the food was incredible, this is the very last thing they're going to put in their mouth. And it should be awesome. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Well, another area you have an amazing amount of experience in is bread. You've written many bread books. Right, right. That. So the technique for making bread in your books is fascinating and not what people think of of when they're making bread so for our listeners who are unfamiliar with your books can you describe the process and these incredible reasons of why the the technique works sure yeah so um we've been doing this uh these books for about 12 years now so um the funny thing is that a lot of people think this is how bread (laughs) has always been made um it's uh I see it all over the internet and it's just amazing to me that this is now sort of uh, a standard way. Um, Our method is not only no need, Um, no need breads have been around for decades, Um, probably, probably mostly from the sixties. What's different about our bread is that it's no need and you can store it in the refrigerator for up to two weeks. So what we do is we take a big container, I say, you know, five quarts at the minimum, a more typical size is six quarts, and you just dump into that container water, yeast, salt, and flour, and that's it. Four ingredients just dump it in. We're making a big, huge batch. So it's enough for um, four loaves of bread or eight pizzas. And you just stir it up. I You can use either a wooden spoon or something called a Danish dough whisk. And you have to Google that because it's the coolest tool. Other than the blowtorch, this is probably my second favorite tool in the kitchen. And it looks like a wire 
whisk. Um, okay, that's not describing it because all whisks are wire, but it's uh, it it's looks beautiful. like a mo- <laughs> it looks like a modern art piece. Yeah. Um, anyway, you have to Google it so that you can see what I'm talking about. And you just stir the ingredients. We're not kneading it. We're just stirring it together until all the flour and water have, you know, married up well. And it's sort of gloppy and, you know, craggly and it's not pretty. And that's what we're going for. And then you just let that sit for a couple of hours because yeast has to do its thing. Um, and, you at the end of those two hours, you have this beautiful stretchy dough. And it turns out that if your dough is wet enough, the proteins in the flour will combine all on their own and you do not have to knead. And so why do the work if it's going to do it for you? And then you just put that, you can either bake it right away or you can put the container into the refrigerator for up to two weeks And just take a piece off as you want, quickly shape it into a ball. It takes 20 seconds, let that rest and then bake it. And that's it. Um, Over the course of those two weeks, um, uh, fermentation is happening. So that's similar to what's going on in like a sourdough. So it has these sourdough characteristics. So the older your dough is, the more it's going to have those characteristics. So the fresh bread, after you've just mixed it um, is lovely. And some people love that, Um, but it's not as complex as the flavor of the bread that you make later that week or even the next week. So people sort of find where in that storage they are happiest. Um, My co-author Jeff used to store his dough for up to 30 days. And I was like, there's no way I'm putting my name on that book. That's just way too long. Um, But he loved that. It was super sour. And he really, really loved it. And I was like, yeah, that's too much for the for most people. So we compromised it two weeks. <laughs> and it's awesome. At 30 days, does it still have enough rising power? Like, does the yeast well, still have some stuff to play with? Yeah, that's an excellent question. It's not. <laughs> that was my other problem, is that... Um, he was really okay with a very dense loaf of bread. And some people are. My mom loves that. I mean, that's the bread she grew up on. And that's, you know, this sort of really heavy, dense European style bread. And that's great. Um, It's this sort of Eastern European thing. And, um, but not everybody is in love with that texture. Um, And for me, I wanted something a little bit lighter And yeah, so it's a great question. You do not have as much rising power. And if I have a dough that's um, getting to even the end of the two weeks, I tend to make things like flatbreads, great pizza. um, But I don't do like a a nice round boule with it anymore. Jeff does, but that's just not my preference. So it's there's not a right, there's not a wrong. It's just whatever your preference is. So I have to tell you something. Amanda sent me your recipe for Portuguese cornbread. Oh, yeah. And my family's Portuguese, and that's what I I bake most of the time. I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So I uh, was going to my cousin's house, who she's from Portugal, and she's going to teach me to cook some traditional dishes. So I'm so to- terrified where this is going. <laughs> to leave this, keep the suspense going. Okay, so I said I'm going to bring bread. They asked me to bring bread, and I thought, and, they, and when my cousin heard I was going to bring that type of bread, her eyes just lit up. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to try Zoe's recipe. And yeah. this is a whole other technique that I haven't have, don't have much experience with. And then I'm going to make one of my more typical recipes that I go to for this style of bread. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so I took both loaves to my cousin. And I didn't tell yeah. her which is which. And, yeah. well, just by looking at them, yours was the winner. And then oh. when we dug into it, we were all just like, wow, this is oh, really? incredible. Oh, Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> Yay. I'm so glad. So thank you for that's that. Awesome. And I'm oh, going to continue to make it. it. And Oh, yeah. Oh, well done. That makes my day. I'm so pleased. That's awesome. <laughs> Very that's cool. So great. That's pretty stellar that it was a big hit, like in a Portuguese I audience. Know. That's so I awesome. Know. I yeah. know. That is super awesome. Yep. Yep. Because we tried, I mean, I, for our pizza and flatbread book, I traveled quite a bit to do research, which I'm putting in air quotes. Um, Really, it was an excuse to go to Turkey and Greece and Italy to eat as much flatbread as I could. Um, But to put those recipes, you know, into a book and have people uh, that have grown up on those breads, try them and enjoy them is like, that's amazing to me. I'm, I'm thrilled. It's really awesome. <laughs> so what are some of your favorite breads to, to eat and to make? Yeah, well, I would say that is very much like my, um, my relationship with pastry in general. It's so different depending on, you know, my mood or the season or, you know, I'm just kind of fickle that way. I don't have favorites generally. Although, having just said that, um, when I met Jeff and we decided to do this book together, the very, very, very first bread that I developed was brioche because I love brioche. And you two as bakers will know this, that it's one of the most laborious processes because, you know, your dough has to be just the right temperature. Your butter has to be just the right temperature. Then you have to marry them together. And some, I have recipes that call for kneading for 45 minutes. And I was like, nobody at home in their right mind is going to go through this process. And this is the process I learned at the Culinary Institute. And so what I determined was why not just melt the butter and dump it all into the bucket, just like we do with everything else and stir it all up with everything and just simplify it that way. And I did it. And I was like, this is really good. <laughs> and I actually was so dumb that I sent the recipe to my professor at the CIA. And I said, Hey, look what I did. <laughs> and um, I thought he was gonna, you know, come back and be like, you are just nuts. What are you doing? You can't do that. And he loved it. And he actually was teaching our recipe side by side. They're not identical. I mean, there are certain things 
that kneading does well. It does give you a stretch to the crumb that you won't necessarily get in something like a brioche because there's so much fat and egg that's sort of interfering with that protein combining that I had talked about. Um, but it's a really, really great bread considering I just dumped it all together and stirred it up. So I was, so I sent that letter off to him and I regretted it. And then he, I heard back and I was, I was like, so really, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So brioche is one of my favorites and I'm a pastry chef. I love sweets. So, um, the sweet breads are my favorite. And in fact, I just finished a manuscript for a new book that's all about the sweet breads, the holiday breads, the celebration breads. Um, and it has been a true joy. It's the probably the book I would have written from the get-go um, and just got the opportunity to do it. Oh, I want that book. I love yeah, that type of yeah. bread. Me yeah. too. They're so beautiful too. I just, I've had so much fun doing this one. Well, it reminds me of our Portuguese sweet bread. It's, it's very iconic in our culture and we also melt the butter and mm -hmm. so, and it yeah. has many, many eggs and a ton of sugar, but I'm, yeah. I'm, it's always reminded me of brioche. So it makes me happy to hear that. Yes, <laughs> Your good. recipe mimics that Terrific. as well. Well, I wish I had talked to you, you know, 20 years ago and you could have <laughs> taught me that. <laughs> that's awesome. I'm so curious to try it. I can't wait to try it because that's one of my favorite breads mm -hmm. to make and to eat, but yeah. I don't do yep. it nearly as often as yeah. I would like to just because of the labor involved. That's and right. I feel that's like right. even using a mixer to knead it is still yep. a process because I have to stay with it. I have this small KitchenAid and it'll walk yeah. off the counter. Oh, oh of course. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So I'm really excited to try this one. And I have my giant bucket on order too. It's uh -huh. just like Amazon's taking a while to get it to yeah. me. But oh good. Good, good, good. I can't wait to hear. I'm super yeah. excited. Yeah, you'll see it popping up on Instagram for sure. Okay. So <laughs> perfect. Is it possible to substitute a sourdough starter? in place of the yeast in some of your recipes, like for your more rustic breads or European style breads? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, in our last book, um, we did the new healthy bread book. We have a sourdough starter in there so people can make their own. But if you already have one established, um, we have all of the instructions either on our website or in our books um, for substituting, you can either um, add sourdough starter to the recipe just for flavor, or you can eliminate the yeast altogether and just use your sourdough starter. So the process that I had described before will just take a lot longer mm. um, to do all of the rising because the sourdough um, starter just takes a lot longer to establish. But absolutely you can make sourdough bread in the same fashion. It won't last as long. You can't store it for two weeks um, because it just doesn't have the strength that the commercial yeast does. Uh, but it's awesome. It's really, really tasty. So I think it's so much fun. If, if people have not 
made their own sourdough starter before. It's so easy. Um, I think there's, you know, a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of mystique around it and people think that it's super complicated and that you have to be really delicate with it. Um, and you, you know, all, this whole feeding procedure, um, try ours. It's very simple. Um, just like our bread recipe, we've sort of demystified it all and made it as easy as it can be. Thank you for that. It was a very selfish question, but I, yeah. Good. <laughs> Good, yeah. We have to indulge ourselves a little bit. Yeah, so. that's awesome. Um, that's why you're doing this podcast. I'm assuming. <laughs> don't, tell it. don't tell it. Don't tell it. So you may have already answered this with what you were just saying about the sourdough, encouraging us to make it. But I wanted to know of all of your recipes, is there one that just pops to your mind that for our listeners who maybe if they haven't tried your recipes before, is there one or two that you're just like, please, please, please make this. It's amazing. Well, I think that would be our master recipe from the new artisan bread in five minutes a day. I think it's amazing bread. It, it's four ingredients. It could not be easier to make. And it's it pretty much for people who have never baked bread before, it'll blow your mind. When we did this book and it was at the publisher and we were testing recipes and I, I told Jeff, my writing partner, I'm going to send it to my mom. And if she can make this, anybody in the world can make this. <laughs> Because my mom, when I was growing up, I don't even think she turned on the oven. Um, and so she tried it and she called me and she was practically crying. And she's like, you cannot believe the beautiful thing I just took out of my oven. I can't believe I just baked bread. And she had dropped it on the way into the oven. So it like slid off of the peel. <laughs> she gathered it back up, put it back on, got it in the oven. I mean, she she had to have made every mistake you can possibly make. And she still made the most gorgeous loaf of bread. And I'm like, all right, that's it. Anybody can do this. It's just so simple. I used to teach, um, you know, I've been teaching for 20 years and it used, I would go into a class and people would be more willing to do a five tiered wedding cake than they would to bake a single loaf of bread because they just thought it was scary. They thought the yeast was scary. The kneading was too labor intensive. People just were terrified of baking bread and it's just the most fun thing to do. And so I think we've, you know, we really wanted to take all of the intimidation, all of those time constraints everybody assumes there are on baking bread. And really, I think, and this is true of all baking, is that it should be joyful. You can, I think you can really taste that in food. If you are enjoying the process, like you had said before, Amanda, that you love just mixing this stuff, like that in and of itself is so much fun. So I think that baking and baking bread in particular 
should just be a joyful thing. And we get a lot of people saying that they're baking together as a family. Like a lot of people are doing this with their kids because it's so easy. Um, and that to me is probably the most exciting thing that we might actually have another generation of bread bakers. I love this I love that. so much. Yeah. The story about your mom is, is wonderful to hear. And then the thought of a family getting together and doing this, this is, I'm thrilled yeah. that that's the yeah. recipe that comes to your mind. Cause yeah. it, it is, it can be very intimidating, for me, like when I was first starting baking, bread was one of those things where I'm like, yeah, I'll try all of this, but not bread, yeah. not bread. Cause I'm, <laughs> I'm not a professional like that. Like yeah. I would, I would literally say that cause it just felt like this yeah. really scary thing. And I love that, um, your book, it, it makes it not so scary because it doesn't yeah. need to be, um, no, not at all. So, yep. So I think Jeremiah and I would literally keep you all day and do a marathon <laughs> podcast, but kind of a lighthearted question as a send off is I'm always curious if you could bake for anybody in the world, who would you like to bake for and what would you make for them? Oh, wow. Right. <laughs> oh, anybody in the world. That's a big one. Okay, so honestly, I know this is going to seem so crazy, but I already do it. I bake for my kids. I mean, they are really my muse. I love baking for them. Um, so I already get to do it. I know that seems like such a lame answer, but it's like I'd be too scared to bake for Julia Child, who would probably be the next one <laughs> on my list. Not only because she's such a mentor and, I mean, just for everything. I mean, for her career, for her food, for everything. Um, but also because I think of all the people that embody how I feel about food and cooking and baking. She's the one. She's the one that has that joy to her. And she's the one, you know, there's so many other people that, do this brilliantly, but they didn't have, they don't all have her joy of it. Like she's, she's the whole package for me. So yeah, maybe I would bake for, or maybe bake with her. <laughs> I don't know if I would want to bake for her, but yes, that would be, that would be it. Perfect answer. Perfect. 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 Love it. <laughs> we all have chills going down our arms right now. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Well, Zoe, I cannot thank you enough. I have been looking forward to this and it exceeded my expectations. It's so fun it's to get to follow so fun. on Instagram and then to make you real in our lives is a really special thing. So thank yes. you so much. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. This was such a treat. I really, really enjoyed it. We adored every moment. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Happy baking. <laughs> happy baking. Happy baking. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye. Be sure to subscribe to Flower Hour on iTunes or SoundCloud. And if you're enjoying your time with us, leave us a review. We'd appreciate it. <laughs>